1: welcome to another edition of big chris live the live stream and then the podcast which you can find everywhere virtually everywhere spotify apple podcasts and our podcast network host deanblundell.com where you can find all sorts of other great content creators uh, all uh, as they say for the unrefined gentleman uh, on that website um we're joined by a special guest this evening uh special for a bunch of different reasons very topical as well uh and um the connection is that this is my best friend's dad but rick revel is a bit more than just my best friend's dad he is an author he's the fourth book is coming out this this year right august, august yeah August we can expect the new book. I Am Algonquin was the first one. I've got a signed copy here and I'm excited to have you on Rick, because um, you know, you were one of the people that I wrote down as, you know, you try and make a list of interesting people when you're starting a podcast, interesting people that you think might have some great stories to tell. And I did write you down on that list. And uh, now that, you know, national headlines are surrounding you know, indigenous children and residential schools, I thought, you know what? Uh, I would love to get your take on this because here's the other thing. The whole time that I've known Rick as my best friend's dad, Rick, I've never, I've never ever heard you make any, any statement about residential schools or about the Indigenous uh, community at large? I mean, you're very much into the history and the storytelling of it, which is why you're a novelist. Um, and, but I'm curious about your take on the national news that's broken uh, over the last couple of weeks, the, the, the things that a lot of Canadians have had their eyes opened up to.
2: Well, um, I... None of my family's ever been in residential schools. And I asked my mother, she just passed away two years ago, and I asked her about that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: She said uh, my grandmother was really good at hiding them in the haystacks. They were trained when they lived in Perth, Ontario, that if anybody strange came up the laneway, they had to run to the barn and hide in the haystack. And, she, and mom said that's why we never ended up uh, Having to, having to go out the farm. This was in the thirties and in the forties. So, um, you know, this residential school is is not new news. Indigenous people for years have been have been trying to tell people about it, and whether nobody listened or wanted to listen. Truth and Reconciliation brought out a lot uh, about the residential schools, about the pain and suffering that was going on. Mm-hmm. A lot of books have come out, and and uh, it make, it, the the colonialists keep saying, "Well, all you want to do is cancel co- cancel history, cancel culture." No, that's that's not what it's all about. They have to really, and like, it all goes down to these Sir John A. McDonald statues, and they have, and I say all the time, Sir John A. McDonald is a hero to the white people. Not a hero to anybody else. He's their hero. Okay? They like to celebrate his birthday, they like to celebrate his death, and when they're doing that, they're celebrating his brutality, too. Even though they say they're not, they are. Because if you're celebrating a man like that, you're celebrating his brutality. He, uh, they like to pass it off and oh, always it was the day and age it was racist because of that well you know that's 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 inexcusable really uh as, as far as i'm concerned the residential schools was is a blot on this on this country a big blot when you have to and all the research that i've done in, in writing is In pre-contact, and contact, the most important thing to a Native community was their children. They were a gift from Keechee Manitou. That was their generation, that was their next generation. That was their life going forward. And once McDonald took that generation, those generation years out of there, he was taking the language, he was taking all the knowledge away from everybody and it's only been in the last five or 10 years that people, that a lot of indigenous people have been brave enough to stand forward and uh, come forward, write books. I, I, there, was a, there was a guy that retired from Toronto Star as a writer and he had a great, great quote. He, he was, uh, I, I think he was uh, from, a- he was Asian, he, Indian from Asia. And he said, "Beware of the indigenous youth, because they're getting educated, and once they get educated, they're going to get they're going to want what's due them. And if they don't, if you don't give what's due them, they're going to take it from you. And if you see all of these statues being pulled down and and all of these uh, protests." A vast, vast majority of the younger Indigenous youth.
1: So you see that as as the bill has come due.
2: Yes, I do. I do. And and Indigenous youth have seen how their the, the pain that their parents and their grandparents have went through, and and they're not going to they're they're not going to take it. Um, and. It's just—it's just that saying that they're going to—they're going to ask for what to do. Then, if they're not going to get it, it. and they've got the intelligence, we got lots. There's lots of lawyers being educated and teachers now in indigenous in the indigenous community. I have to—I printed this out to you. I have to read this to you. Uh, And uh, this—this—this was uh, during the Truth and Reconciliation and. It, CBC uh, put it out last week in a tweet and uh, it's, it's kind of brutal, it's, it's, uh, but it really says what, what happened. And this testimony supporting the claims was at, at times shocking, and they're talking about truth and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Elder Irene Favreau told a 1998 town hall forum, Now, this is 1998, 23 years ago. I went to residential school in Muskelwigan from 1944 to 1949. And I had a rough life. I was mistreated in every way. There was a young girl, and she was pregnant from a priest there. And what they did, she had her baby, and they took the baby and wrapped it up in a nice pink outfit. And they took it downstairs while I was cooking dinner with a nun. And they took the baby into the furnace room. And they threw that little baby in there and burned it alive. And all you could hear was this little cry like, oh, and that was it. You could smell the flesh cooking. That's striking. That's devastating. Yeah. And and CBC retweeted that uh, um, the last week or so. And now this stuff is coming out, and people are believing it. it. It took, it took finding all these, these dead bodies, buried without names, like in, in a mass grave, for for people to finally realize all the pain that went on. And there's still guys, there's still there's still people alive responsible for those residential schools, and they should be brought to justice. So just yeah. people are taking them to the United nations court world court and
1: uh and and it should be done what like well what i mean yeah that makes sense that there are people still alive today that were responsible because they they lasted at least in name until 1996 Uh, and and i've mentioned this before and i'll mention it again like When I was younger, it was not taught in school. It was not something that we learned about in our history classes. You know, we learned about Upper and Lower Canada, and we learned about, you know, Confederation, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we did not learn any of that. But when 1996, I guess I would have been been 15 years old, I remember asking my dad, when that news came out that they were closing the residential schools, they were doing away with it. I asked my father, I said, what, what, what is that? And he explained it to me, maybe not in such graphic and brutal terms, but he explained to me how unjust it was. He explained to me how unfair it was. And he explained to me, uh, how, how long it had been going on. And so I had a, a base knowledge, but you know what? Not every teenager in 1996 asked their dad and not every teenager in 1996 uh got the the same answer as i did um and so yeah there are people out there rick you're right that that are still walking breathing as free people and have not answered the call for their for their complete uh, complacency uh, complacency or or involvement in it whatsoever i i have to give her a lot of credit to the school boards now
2: that they're teaching yeah. I, I work as a knowledge keeper within the Limestone District School Board and the Algonquin Lakeshore Catholic School Board. It's amazing the progress that they're making. And the young children are growing up to to appreciate who the who, who indigenous people are. Mm-hmm. I, again, I, I have lots of <laughs> Everything has a story with me. But... Um, I've been probably working in the school for five or six years. There's about eight or ten of us in the Kingston area, and we're all... I'm an author, and and it's, it's, they, they all got different skills, like drummers and their craftsmen and Métis players. I was back at Granite Ridge, and that's in Shabbat Lake. I was doing a thing in the library, and they're from JK to grade 12. And remember, I went to school... I didn't know I was indigenous for a long time because my parent, my mother and my grandparents kept it secret. They hid out in Well, And
1: that's, and that's how yeah. your ancestors never ended up in a residential school.
2: Yeah. Well, they kept it pretty secret. They really did R- really kept it secret. And uh, so you wouldn't even, if you were going to school, like I did 60 years ago, I would have been in grade, in grade four. You wouldn't have said you're up like, you know, so anyway, this little girl, I start, I'm, I'm with a grade two class, through, we're in the library, this little girl, I'm five minutes in, she puts up her hand. I said, yes, and like, I, I said, like, with these, with the young kids, it's either a story, they're going to tell you a story, they're going to ask you a question. Jeez. She stood right up, and she said, my name's Myra, and I'm an Algonquin person, just like that, and I, and I. I I choked up, and she sat down. She was so proud. I was so proud that the teacher made that classroom feel so safe. Yeah. The cheek stood up and said that, but it gets better. A couple minutes later, I I, I, I talked. The teacher's got tears in her eyes. Two or three minutes later, a little boy puts up his hand, and gets up, and i forget what his name is. Let's say Billy. He said, "My name is Billy." Myra's my friend and she's an Algonquin.
1: <laughs>
2: and he sat down. I said, Wow, this is amazing. Five minutes later, another little girl puts up her hand. She stands up. She said, She told me her name. She said, My name is Sarah. Myra's my friend and she's an Algonquin. Wow. And she sat down. That classroom felt so safe. That, that girl could identify who she was and, and all her friends could identify. You couldn't do that 60 years ago, Chris. Yeah. There's no way the teachers, and I tell that story, and I get some teary eyes from teachers, and I tell them how proud I am of the teachers, that they make in their classrooms feel safe. I had another little girl, I was in uh, Bloomberg Public School, or was it Bloomberg? Joyceville Public, one of the was our cat no maybe I got some in with Saint I think it was Saint Margaret Insel. and I I, t- I was telling the children why natives cut their hair the way they did. And, and and there's reasons like I said just, they didn't cut their hair then they done a Shawnee didn't shave their heads and the Hurons didn't shave their heads to looked fierce they shaved their heads because they lived in large communities indoor and in lawn houses, and they shaved their heads because of head lice. That's why they shaved their head and they bristled it with bare grease and that kept it off. The women, they wouldn't, they didn't shave their heads. They combed, they combed their hair by the fire and they picked out the headlights and that. The men were too busy hunting and protecting to, to worry about that. But it's, but my, my people, the Amawini, didn't live, they, we live in, in like little uh, conical shaped wigwam teepees or wigwams and uh, Four or five to family would not so much lice there, but we shaved our heads on one side, depending if we we're left or right-handed.
1: Hmm.
2: And or we would do a hair up in a braid, like I have a big long braid at the back. And, and there was a reason for that. And the kids would look at me. I said, because if you're right-handed and you pull your bow back and you let the string go, your hair doesn't get caught up in it, in the long hair.
1: Right. And, and everything everything had a practical reason. Yeah. A practical route Yeah, to, yeah. To, to method to the madness, if you will.
2: But once I told the story, this little girl had long hair. When I was leaving that day, and she told me she was Mohawk. When I was leaving that day, she came out and she had her hair in a braid. She says this is the first time I've ever put my hair in the braid, and this is so I'm gonna wear it the rest of my life.
1: There you go. Yeah. So Rick, you know, uh what I love about again to your novels. I Am Algonquin Uh, was the first of of the trilogy. And then the fourth is coming out, like you say, this August. Um, I encourage people to go out and and Google this. My mom actually, believe it or not, my mom was on the phone with me today. She did not know that you were on the podcast tonight, but she specifically asked about the new book. So I know that she is especially interested in getting her hands on a copy uh, this coming August. So, um, But what I love about this is it has been, and you've gotten heavily involved with schools and school boards with this literature. And, and I remember when you first wrote the first book, because like I said off the top, this is my best friend's dad. So, you know, I've been then been there for the journey. Uh, I remember when you first wrote that book and then eventually the deal came and then the school tours came where you would go and speak to classes. And I thought, and maybe I never told you this, but I thought that that was amazing. I thought it was exactly what we needed. And, uh, and here we are all these years since 1996, since residential schools and all that has gone away. Like you say, we have made some progress, haven't we? I mean, the fact that, that these kids, these anecdotal stories and that uh, you know that your, your books, are you've got a book deal and your literature is getting out there in the education system, that's a huge plus and that's a huge win, I think
2: yes like it surprised me really because i got published when I was 61 years old uh sh- we should tell the your listeners what my books are about 1300s pre-contact they're not about residential schools
1: yeah, about- this, this is yeah this is way back this is, and yeah. that's why i say i've always known you as you know into the, the the history and the culture like my dad is big into you know all the scandinavian history and traditions and you know, and I'd love for you guys actually to get together one day because, you know, he likes to go out to, uh, you know, a sweat lodge or sweat tent. And I don't know if he's doing ayahuasca or mushrooms out there. I don't know what he gets up to. But, uh, you know, he goes out and he has meditation sessions and he's looking for visions and stuff. There's a lot of similarities when you come to some of these cultures, even though they're from completely opposite places but um i've always known you as a guy who has been about the real history and the rich history and like you say your books are pre-contact and, and for those who don't know by all means you know give us a synopsis
2: yeah um i, I got lucky at the first uh, um, i met a woman on uh, linkedin her name was marty ford she was the superintendent of the frontier school board in manitoba which is the biggest which is the largest geographical school board in canada she got the books in her class. She, she made sure the books went into her school board, and she sent me one line, and it and it really struck me. She said, "Rick, I want to thank you for for bringing it for teaching our children the culture." And these were native kids, and I thought, "Wow, yeah, that residential schools were a brick wall, and and the and the elders haven't been around to teach them." And then and it, and. Uh, um, Chris Reed, his name was Reed. He got my books before he retired. Put all my books in all sixty libraries of the Limestone School District School Board, all three. Oh. And uh, and then that and then it just started from there. And in the last four or five years, I've been going into schools. I I have a what I call a Native Tickle Bag and a Native Tickle Trunk full of furs and weapons. And we talk about the thirteen hundreds. The first book takes place. Um, in the Ottawa Valley, what where you're from.
1: Yeah, my home the, area, yeah. Alamut
2: Island, Morrison Island, uh, the Ottawa Valley. I use the, the language in the vernacular. So I, the languages are all sprinkled through the book. So that goes over good with the school boards. In this second book, it's, it's about a family of uh, Amawini, uh, who we call, Algonquin people call ourselves, our proper name is Amawini. And through about 50 or 60 years. So the first book, second book starts in Newfoundland. Oh yeah, the first book, uh, I introduce you to legends. You're gonna get in, you get introduced to Mittagimish, who's who's a who's a shapeshifter. He's a trickster rabbit and his sidekick, he's Miju Pijou, the fabulous underwater night panther. Second book starts in Newfoundland. You get introduced to Glooscap the Piju, the Elphedonous underwater night panther, you can go to Mazina, Lake Mazana and on the rocks there, there's a picture of him that's been there about five or 600 years ago. Glooscap, I humanize all these, these legends, which, which they are, they're shape shifters. Glooscap, if you go to Nova Scotia, outside the Mi'kmaq uh, Welcome Center, there's a 40 foot statue of Glooscap. These aren't, these are pretend things. I write about true culture, Actual places that you can actually travel to, like your your hometown. A lot takes place up in Elmont. Yeah. Uh, the third book uh, starts in southwestern Ontario, and you learn about Nanabush, who who sleeps outside of Thunder Bay, the sleeping giant. The fourth book starts in in uh, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta. Follows a family.
1: So, I got a weird question, Rick, and I just googled it just for a second there. You mentioned Glooskap, and that triggered something that I thought was correct, and I had to Google to make sure um but there is a there is a theory out there, uh and you can scroll back to previous podcast episodes where we talk about the curse of Oak Island, and we're, oh, yeah. <laughs> we're talking about Templars visiting the East Coast of Canada. Uh, pre-Columbus, pre-Discovery, and perhaps that the Templars came here, and that Glooscap, who you mentioned, uh, was possibly, the way he had shimmering, he had a shimmering skin, right, or he had a glow about him, yep. that it perhaps was a European Templar in, in Templar armor. Do you know anything about that at all?
2: I've heard that story before. Glooscap is that uh, uh, he, he had two dogs called Night and Day, one white and one black. Mm-hmm. He had a uh, Nukemus was his grandmother's sidekick, and he had a little sidekick named Martin. He was a small person. That's who he traveled with, and they all had powers. I never heard about the Templar thing. Bluecap was along pre-contact.
1: Yeah, well, that's and that's the theory is that the Templars had, had come here pre-contact. Is that a great man's theory or? it was uh yeah, well listen, when you're trying to figure out what's buried on oak island you come up with a lot of crazy theories anyways we could we can credit kent stewart with that with that theory that he pitched here uh that the templars had built the treasure there but anyways back to your story you have all these characters in your in your books right yeah i
2: uh and and each i always ask i talked to elders before I, I, I write about them i do a lot of research so um, There's a guy in, in Lower Brewery Reserve in South Dakota. I went down there to do research. I didn't meet him. I met him, his cousin, I talked to him on the phone. His name is Rob Her Mini Horses. Interesting about his name, but
1: mm-hmm.
2: if we have time later. I asked him, about, I said, I need to know about legends that you have because I want to include it in my book. So I said, Well, we have uh, 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 Rabbit Boy. I said, well, i am already got a couple of those. He said we have um um white buffalo calf woman. And I said, that ah, that's too 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 sacred to the Lakota people. I'm not gonna talk about that It's not in Lakota bird. It says big elder brother. I said, Oh. So he told me a story about Big Elder Brother. So he Lower Brew Reserves is the is the poorest reserve in North America. It's in South yeah. Dakota. So one July day, they're sitting on the on the library steps, waiting for the library to open him and some buddies. And this white woman who had came from New York City, Rob said to save the Indians here, hmm. was the librarian. And she's driving this Toyota and no paved roads. This was in the 80s. No paved roads. And she comes barreling down the road and the dust is just quiet, Rob says. It's it's all over the place. She pulls up in the car, jumps out of the car, and she says to the to the boys, these Lakota boys sitting on the desk, we've got to call Sioux Falls. We've got to get their TV station here. We've got to get NBC here. And the guys are saying, Lakota guys are pretty laid back. They're pretty cool guys. And they said, oh yeah. Okay. Uh, what, what's up? I seen Bigfoot. I seen him. Because I was coming into town. And the guy said, oh yeah, you yeah. know, And and she says, then she starts crying, Rob says, you don't believe me, you don't believe me. They said, Yeah, we believe you. We leave food outside the village for him all the time. He smells so bad we don't want him in here. He he's our guardian. He's been around for years. He's he's he he comes through a portal. Like he's like he's like a a person like that. And she started bawling her eyes out, didn't think she they believed him, so she takes off in her car and never comes back. Rob says that's how I got my first summer job. I was a librarian after that. So he, he told me this story. So I had to use, I had to use uh, Big Elder Brother
1: in, in the third book. So that's a character in the third book then.
2: Yeah, and that's a true Lakota legend. That's a big one. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it's so funny, Rick, because you've... Well, not funny, but it's, it's great that you have all these stories and that you're continuing on the tradition of telling these stories because from my perspective... That was the worst part of back looping back to where we started with the residential schools. Is it? It was an outright attempt to erase all of that, and and it didn't get erased. Oh, I, I mean, I, I mean, maybe there was some parts erased, but but it seems as though these legends, these stories, are still continuing on, and that's that's positive to me.
2: Yes. Yeah. So yeah it, for me. To, as a writer it was very important to find these stories and to talk to the elders and and what's real important Chris I don't I don't know if you realize this when I wrote my first two books I couldn't put the translations in because there was nobody that I could talk to that I could hear the words mm. my second book I did find a Micmac talking dictionary once the third book I was able to put all the pronunciations in because Mi'kmaq, the Mi'kmaq community list of East Quebec run a talking dictionary. They have elders that bring them in once a month and they, and they pronounce the words uh, online and you can type in the English word and you can mm-hmm. hear it. In the University of Minnesota, they got a school there called the um, William William Indian College. And the students there look after the Anishinaabe online talking dictionary. So. I I was really, really excited. I wrote the third book. It had the pronunciations. And that was kind of going to be the end. I had an an open ending on it then because I wanted to get get the Nishinabe Travels to the Rocky Mountains. Then, by a fluke, I found a Blackfoot Talking Dictionary, and it's ran through the University of Lethbridge. And it has all these amazing women elders and men elders that pronounce the physical language. and this has only happened in the last four or five years that they've been bringing in the elders that can talk the language. You'd be amazed. Like, the last I heard, but my friend Eddie Miracle told me that there's about 1,200 Mohawks that can speak it fluently. Mm. And, they're, and, they're, and uh, they're building a, a school in Tanganyika to teach the Mohawk language. They're getting some money. And the biggest problem after grade four or five, they haven't got the teachers that can teach the Mohawk. It's like the Lakota; they got less than a thousand fluent speakers, right. and, and 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 it goes on and on. And now they're bringing it back; they're they're putting it online so people so the language is there forever. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good and bad to internet, and I mean, obviously, there's you know. Everything has is, is been so divisive over the years. Now that everybody's online, everybody's on Twitter, everybody can voice their opinions and argue, uh, you know, and, and it it's become exhausting, this Internet, for a lot of people. They get tired. I was texting with someone today who said, yeah, geez, I wish we could just go back to flip phones. And, and yeah, I, I agree in some ways. But when you look at at these examples, this is what the Internet was for. You know, I think this is – That's what the Internet was truly actually created for was that kind of use. The fact that there is our languages that were on the on the verge of extinction, but now they're able to help rebuild them with the help of the Internet and the collaborative sense of the Internet and what it can accomplish, you know, with people in different locations. You say one place in Minnesota, you know, in this place. I mean, these are far, far distances, but the Internet makes them not far at all. And and you know it's it's too bad that the internet got taken over by you know haters and porn and whatever, <laughs> because that's truly what I think the internet was intended for.
2: Yeah, and uh, Queens University teaches Mohawk and uh, Anishinaabe there now. In the, in the last two or oh. three years, there's a mm-hmm. woman named Maureen Buchanan. She runs a language nest in Weller Avenue. Yeah,
1: teaches
2: Mohawk and Missionabi there's so many good things happening now that people don't know about, but yeah. it's, 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 a little, it's a little smudge. It's spreading and spreading and spreading. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And well, learning. I, I have a couple of questions dating back to when we first started our conversation. We've been on such a journey already in the first half hour here, but um, you know, you, you mentioned off the top, um, you know, your, your family history that they hid in haystacks and, 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 and dodged these people coming for families. And, and, um, do, do you feel, uh, do you feel lucky or how do you feel about that? What's your reflection on that family history?
2: Um, the, lucky is just a word. I think a lot that the past, my mother was a single mother. Uh, uh, um, my, my father was killed in 1953 when I was eight months old in a car accident with my mother's first cousin. If they had known she was indigenous. I probably would have been taken right away with, with that in 1953. Lucky? Mm-hmm. I don't know. They kept it so, so secret. Uh, my grandfather was a wonderful, wonderful man. If you look at pictures of my mother and her two brothers and grandfather when they were young, like they were, they, you could see they were indigenous, but they they kept their mouths shut. And uh, Grandpa worked hard. He worked. They worked in that, uh, My grandmother was white, but I think her her mother was was native. She was a La Pointe, but they were poor. They worked. They lived in tents and in cook worked in the cook camps when they were putting hydro through northern Ontario was able to scrape enough money together when he was 42 or 43 and bought a farm. And, uh, it was always that whisper when I was a kid, always a whisper when I a kid. And it was just kind of a flunky thing when I found, out. I found out from a cousin who we were and mm-hmm. had my native card within two weeks after yeah. that. I'm proud, and not, I'm proud of who I am and tell everybody who I am.
1: Yeah. Well, absolutely, Rick, as you should. And obviously you've got the, uh, the not just uh, the vocals, so you've got the written word now too, uh, you know, to, th- that tells everybody who you are as well too. It's it's so such a great part of your identity, and and you're one of the more richer people that I know. Uh, you you enrich my life with with that, you know. Whenever I hear or see you speak about it, it's always great to hear. Um, although there is obviously a lot of you know uh, darker and sadder things in in that history. Um, okay you know, I always find a positive, I always find a very positive outlook from you, so. Um, have, um,
2: if you got another question, I got a story I have to tell, when you're talking about, I'll go ahead and tell this. Go, but anyway,
1: go, go for it, go for it. You know, is, these are
2: my, these are my three books, anyway. Great, great artist work by Dunder, and the new book's coming out with Crossfield, it's called Algonquin Legacy. Then, before we leave, I got to talk about my fifth book, which I'm really proud of.
1: Oh, you see, this is the thing. You're still going. You're always cooking these stories up. That's what I'm talking about. Like, it's. Anyway, the first time. You're rich you're full.
2: My first book signing, I was doing a book signing in Belleville. I Not one of my, like, when I, for my first book. And I, I was proud of it and I wanted to sell it. And a guy came up to me and he says, You don't look indigenous. I had short hair, short hair like this. Yeah, right. You don't look indigenous. I, I didn't know what to say because I, you know, I wanted to sell the books and uh, said, I'll buy a book for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Second time, Algonquin spring, I had long hair and a ponytail down to my back. Nobody said a word to me. Nobody said a word. Didn't say I didn't look indigenous or anything. Mm-hmm. Third time, same thing up in Belleville, signing the books, guy came up to me and said, you got blue eyes, you're not indigenous. Then he said, you don't look indigenous. I said, how did you want me to look? Did Should I have war paint on my face when I came in here? No, I don't really give a shit because I got three bucks out and nobody's going to push me around. I'm not. Yeah. yeah. The guy kind of looked at me and he walked away. And uh, so now I, like, I have a I have a braid down my back. So I just. Oh, yeah, yeah. Turn, turn around and walk away.
1: That's a- but that braid that braid is a pales in comparison. You had a, a much more fierce one not too long ago. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. My wife likes this one better.
1: <laughs> people,
2: people expect you to look like I don't know if you ever, ever read Thomas King's books. He talks about you look like a, a dead Indian. a dead Indian is like people that dress in regalia like he, he's a, he's a comic. He's a native guy that he's really funny. He used to have a dead dog got a cafe, went to CBC. And I think right. said, a lot of people, a lot of people expect you to look like dead Indians dressed in buckskin and paint on and riding a horse and the sunset. That's not what, a, what we are, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's there's lots of people that live off the land and, and, and that they expect, you, know, you have to, have, people think you have to have this certain look I have lots of friends that don't say that, but it's just like you get people walking up to you and saying, hmm, oh, geez, you don't look like, you know, what yeah, what what, what
1: does any what does anything look like anymore? Yeah, That's the other thing, yeah, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, it's just it makes me laugh. I, I laugh. I usually I laugh. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Anyway, I'll let you ask
1: some questions here. So, yeah. So I, I was going to ask, you know, like you've preserved a lot of this, but are you aware of anything that's been lost for good permanently? Is there, is there, some, is there anything that we will never know? Oh, hmm. It
2: There's lots of things that being discovered that we thought we didn't know. And mm-hmm. archaeologists, uh, uh, people that study w- when they dig up burial sites, and that. And there's there's lots of things coming forward. They always said, I remember I always said, well, natives didn't scalp. Uh, that was a year. They, well, they dug up, I talk about it in one of my books, in the forward or the epilogue or something, uh, that they found this uh, area. And they traced it back to the 1300s, and there was 450 people in a in a mass burial site. They had been massacred and all scalped. That's hmm. pre-contact, like 200 and some years pre-contact. And they are discovering things like that. they discovered discovering ancient civilizations here, and um, see, we had no word. Written word, okay.
1: Yeah, and that makes a lot. it makes a, a, a scene where a lot can be lost.
2: Yeah, and a lot got lost when the kids got put into residential school. The elders, there was nobody to tell the oral history to.
1: Yeah,
2: and there, there was some children that they ended up getting taken away, and they were told, and they, and they saved it, and 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 that oral history was saved, but it was wasn't as much as it should be saved. It's, yeah. there's, you know, there's the travels of the, the Anishinaabe people that left all their, they came from the west, from the east coast to the west coast, uh, pre-contact and during contact, and they left all the paintings around uh, Peterborough and Niagara Falls and Nazanah and that uh, of their journey. Um, we had a great civilization here. We had no jails. There was no theft. If you were hungry, people shared with you. We had enemies, we had allies, but we didn't have these great big huge battles like they had in Europe, um, open fields because we could not afford to lose warriors. Like we didn't have the slums of Paris or the slums of London, England to go get, because you lost 5,000 soldiers and you go start hauling people off the the streets. We didn't have that. we respected life. Women had lots of power. And when the British came, that's when they started making chiefs start being elected because they didn't want to talk to the women. They didn't right. want to deal with women. Right. But the Shawnee has got a rich history of the clan mothers, um, the Blackfoot. They, 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 they were so well organized. They had their own police forces that, that controlled the hunts. They had their that controlled everything in the village that looked after like gay people very important in society uh, in the Amawini society if you were gay you looked after elders my age I'd be an elder and maybe maybe my son was passed away maybe I was the only one left they would hunt for me gay people raised the orphans if they hadn't if there was no family left they raised the orphans they were so important to the society uh, mm. and uh, they, and then the coat in the
1: Cheyenne
2: society, they were they were they were children of the thunder god and we we had
1: religion. Yeah.
2: And like you know, like it was all there for us.
1: Yeah, and 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 it's a shame that none of that got absorbed. You know, sometimes when you have cultures intermingling or or you know, as as they did in Europe for centuries, uh you know, you would pick up different parts of each culture. I always think about when, you know, the Vikings came to the United Kingdom or into Britain and, and how eventually, yes, there was some conflict, but at the same time, uh, eventually it did some of their traditions and intermingled with the British traditions. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's a shame that none of that really happened. It was, it was, uh, not an intermingling at all. Um, you know, and none of that really got absorbed. I mean, imagine that if some of those traditions or some of those, you know, ideas, societal ideas actually got absorbed into settlers if there was a more peaceful uh, transition, uh, you know.
2: Just the healing, just the the medicines that we knew about. Um, One of the people that I worked with in the school board said we had a bit of a problem at one school because one teacher said that we were condoning tobacco use. I said, they don't understand. We mm-hmm. we didn't use our four medicines, tobacco, sweet uh sweetgrass. This is the sweetgrass that I grow. We use it for smudging. It's it was used when a when a woman gave birth, it was used to, to stop vaginal bleeding. Mm-hmm. I have sage over here. We used it to smudge with, keep mosquitoes away. We make teas out of it. Yeah. And cedar, vitamin C, great tea. But Tobacco. What we used tobacco for? We would carry it in our medicine bag. If I was wounded, I'd pop it in my mouth and chew on it and put it on my wound. Yeah. It was the only it, the only time it, we would use it. If 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 you were an ally, I would send a runner to your village and say, and, and say, Chris, we're going to war or, or, or we're going on a big hunt. Will you take this tobacco as a gift and come and help us? Right. And maybe when you did come, we might smoke a pipe of it to thank the gods. That's it. We didn't stand outside a teepee with our legs crossed and smoking. Well, well you know what?
1: That's all it takes to get me to go hunting, Rick. Just offer me some smoke. I'll be there in a jiff. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: like we, we gave what the land gave us yeah. and used it and looked after it. Yeah. Land was, was important to us. We wouldn't go in and wipe out a, a a whole family of beavers. We would make sure that there was enough there for the next year. And we wouldn't, we make sure that when we picked wild rice, that we threw enough wild rice back into the lake so it would grow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know? Well, I think too that, you know, speaking of beavers, I mean, like there wasn't an economy of tricorn hats that was demanding beaver pelts. That's the other yep. thing too. You know, that was one of the things too that drove sort of the, the destruction of the land was the European economy uh, that demanded things like beaver pelts and, and things of that nature, right?
2: Yeah, well, yes. And, and another thing, th- this is an interesting story. Yeah. Uh, so when the pilgrims came over, they, they were really religious. The natives didn't turn to religion. They cut their heads off. and like They, they, they brutalized them. They burnt them at the stake. Yeah. So the natives in in that in the East Coast had wampum, beautiful wampum beads. And, and the purple beads were were rare because when you found the shell, shells, you had that little bit of purple in it. So they started using it as a currency. So they capture native and say, we're holding him for ransom. We want five rows of wampum for him, huh. weird. Uh, and in, until after about a year and a half, somebody in Europe started making counterfeit wampum that they had to quit using it as a currency. A lot of natives died because they'd capture them. And if you didn't get, get wampum belts, they'd kill them or whatever. And this was on the East Coast with, in the 15, 1600s. Like, it's wow. just weird. we used it to tell stories. They would They would, like... Uh, they, if they made a peace pact with somebody, they wove that story into the wampum belt and they gave it to you. Yeah. It was a sacred thing. So when the white people come, oh, we're going to use this for money because they didn't have coins and that.
1: Right, like. right. They needed something to, yeah.
2: Yeah. And so they, you know, it's a true story, and, but it's weird.
1: Yeah. Well, there's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, there's a lot of eye opening things that we've learned that I think a lot of Canadians are learning. And back to, if I can loop back to the statue thing that's happening these days, I noticed that you know the Sir John A statue is still standing in Kingston. I noticed today that there is uh, there's a big uh, movement afoot to, to have the statue removed at City Park in Kingston. I know that the students or that the, not the students but uh, the the people uh, at Egerton Ryerson statue at Ryerson University got toppled the other day. The head was thrown into the lake. Um, you know, what would you like to see happen? Would you like to see that statue removed? If so, how? would you like to see it its head chopped off and thrown in the lake or or what?
2: I don't like Sir john McDonald. he is i don't like him at all. If you read the forwards and and if you read yep. any but not in the interior of my book, but on the epilogues and the forwards, you know that I hate the guy. If you take away a Sir Johnny McDonald statue and you hide it. Never bring it out again. 30 years from now, a kid that was born just after that statue goes, he's walking down the street. Doesn't see it. And if they're not, if he can't relate that story to the residential schools, he doesn't know the full story. Okay? Right. If you keep that statue there, that starts the conversation. A lot of people might not agree with me. But there's there's indigenous people that do agree with me, and we're probably split on it. And you, if you you need to start that conversation, about, but you need to put something beside it. My I can't tell you too much about this. But myself and another two other people have been working for me and one fella. We just brought in this lady. Been working for a long time on something mm-hmm. that we want to put there with a national figure um I'd, I'd love to be able to announce it on your podcast but i can't we have to keep it a secret no,
1: no problem no problem i look forward to seeing what this is and,
2: and it's 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 national he's nationally known and and we've been working for a couple and a half years we, and we need, you need something like that beside the statue to tell the rest of the story you just can't go out and say well this guy if, if you're a 16-year-old kid and you go up there and you read the plaque, you think, yeah, well, if this is all you've been taught, yeah. He saved our country from the Americans. He did this and that. But he took the land from the natives, gave it to the railroad companies who in turn sold it to the settlers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like Hudson's Bay Company sold, sold sold all the land out west for a million and a half million to McDonald's and the Cree people and all the plains people, they didn't even know what was going on it was your land. It's been their land forever. Somebody comes, right. somebody comes along and sells your house and then somebody moves in the next day.
1: You know? Well, I, I think that there's something to be said for, for using the, using a statue or using a landmark like that as, as a, as I hate to use the term, but as a teaching moment. Um, but uh, like, I think of, I think it's in Cornwall, Ontario, but there is, you know, there's a canal and they have a plaque next to the canal that, Thousands of, I think, Irish immigrant workers died to build this canal. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Like, If they could put a plaque up next to a canal to commemorate the thousands of people that died to help build the canal, then surely they could put a plaque up next to Sir John A. Macdonald and tell people what an a-hole he was, right? And all the thousands of natives
2: that died so he can get the land out there and create, create Canada. Yeah. And- and like I said before, he's a white man's hero. He's not he's not an indigenous hero. He's not he's not a Chinese hero. Yeah. He's,
1: not,
2: he's not a black person's hero. He's a white man's hero. And you gotta remember, white people like to name roads and places after people. Indigenous people we didn't. If we walked out and we seen, oh that's that's the land with the swamp in it. That's the name we gave it. it was, we didn't name it after the guy that was walking beside us. So you have to remember if you name something after somebody and you don't do your due diligence, 70 or 80 years around in the road, you're going to find out what this guy really was all about. And then all of a sudden you got all these problems.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and, and yeah, exactly. You got, I mean, I don't think naming anything after a person is a good idea. I don't think spokespeople are great ideas. I remember, remember Jared from subway. That was a mistake. That was
2: especially when they found out who he really was.
1: That's exactly it. Exactly. Like, but, you know, you think of other restaurant mascots, not Jared, but let's say Peter Pete from Peter Pit. I mean, Peter Pete's fictional. He's not gonna do anything wrong, so it's okay. He will he will never, you know, he'll he'll last forever. Why do we attach ourselves? Why do we name buildings after people? Why do we have statues of people? Why do we have Jared as a spokesperson for Subway? I'll never understand. That
2: guy with the beer commercial you got got
1: yeah, the, the Alexander Keith's guy, exactly. <laughs> he turned out to be uh, you know, <laughs> it, it, it awful stuff too, right? So I agree. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you've nailed it, Chris. You've definitely nailed it. Yeah. You have to understand,
2: it's, but everything reverts back to the white society, that they like naming things after people, or, and and then it just comes back to bite them.
1: Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work out. Uh, Rick Ravel, I loved having you on tonight. We're going to wrap up the podcast in a few moments, but I Am Algonquin is the first of the trio that's out there august again look for the the new book and use some sage this summer to keep the uh the bugs off uh because it legit works i know it does because as i mentioned this is my best friend's dad and i'm over in your son's garage or at least when i used to hang out with people before the pandemic be in his garage and he just have the sage burning and i'm like what is that smell and he's like it's sage keeps the bugs away you know just little things like that man uh so now, I, get, I have to, before we leave,
2: I know you want to leave. So yeah. the last book's called Eldonquin Legacy, finishes that series, comes out in August. But the book that I got coming out next, I'm excited about it because I've already got a contract signed for it.
1: That's amazing. I've got
2: a person who wants to make a movie out of it. There we go. And it's called the Elk Whistle Warrior Society. There's an Easter egg at the, in the Algonquin Legacy. And quickly, it's about a secret society of Native women who have their PhD and their masters. Mm-hmm. Every one of them have a black belt, and they hunt down uh, human traffickers of Native women, murderers yeah. of Native women, and, and people that abuse Native children. And they do it, like, top.
1: It and sounds I- like a Quentin Tarantino movie. To me, well, I'm, please tell me it's Tarantino that wants to make a movie. No,
2: it's somebody that's really famous that are, like, uh and it's a it's a native woman, and she's got the information. And she, I remember she was one of my pre readers because I sent it out to all women to pre read. Yeah, he came back. She says, "I've been looking like I've been looking for something like this all my life." You ever thought of a movie? And I said, "Would you like to?" And she said, "Yes." So. I can't really say your name because okay did, that's all right yeah, i'm it's, it's it's an oral thing right now nothing signed but she she was excited about it so i'm excited
1: about it. people are talking people are saying things people are talking the wow. up with the
2: warrior society
1: i like that and by women <laughs> yeah i think it's a great premise and i think it's got all it checks all the boxes um, Rick Ravel, I like to think you of, of you as the uh, George RR R. Martin of indigenous writing uh, because you're uh, your kid's just going to keep writing books and they all sound even more interesting each each one over the more you discover the more you want to share and that's what I love about you man
2: hey I really appreciate you having me on the show you're a great soul you're a great friend to my son and uh you you and Patrick have always been
1: uh, his soul brothers, and uh, what do you call yeah. it? You got a name for this? Oh, the bro- the brotherhood. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. It, found- it sounds more sinister than it is. It's not yeah. like the no. it's not like that other society that you've got in your fifth book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No,
2: but uh, yeah, you guys have been great friends for a long time, and uh, I really appreciate uh, you uh, thinking enough well, of me to to let me
1: ramble on. Oh, no, no, Rick. The pl- pleasure was mine and like i say my mom will be excited to hear about the new book coming out in august so thanks again rick revel i am algonquin you can see the lovely lit up thing in the in the back and uh again follow him on twitter as well uh revel rick is your uh, twitter handle to uh, keep up to date on all his latest writings really appreciate you and uh, we'll talk soon okay see you sooner than later i hope
2: yeah, Megwitch. Chris,
1: uh, maybe when I find out
2: something definite about Elbert's words,
1: we'll get together. Yeah, I, I love this book. <laughs> I yeah, I, you know what? The fact that you're excited about it—I mean, that's the other thing too, man. Is it? Um, you know, there's some writers who will just write to write. Uh, you write because you're passionate, and you're passionate about what you're writing about, man. It's great.
2: I wrote it at my local bar, longhand.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in tonight, Rick Rivell, our guest. And uh, we'll talk again possibly next week, next Thursday at 9 p.m. Although we are, I am surrounded by boxes here. I don't know if we're going to get another episode in before we move. There will be a, a break, a hiatus for the podcast for a number of weeks. Um, I hope to rally for uh, the first week of July, um, but I promise I'm going to try and squeeze one in next week. Uh, guests to be announced. Thanks again, everybody. Miigwech.